Happy New Year, friends. Welcome to this week's episode of Footsteps of the Messiah, as we are almost finished with the cycle of 5783, and this very short parasha this week is bumping the schedule of the normally scheduled program of Ha'azinu to next week. So, welcome to this high holiday and New Year edition of Footsteps of the Messiah. I'm your host, Kevin. 5784 is approaching. Tishri 1, Rosh Hashanah is near, and I'm recording this the week leading up to September 15th and 16th, which is Shabbat uh, and Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Shabbat is day one of Rosh Hashanah. Since there are special readings for this Shabbat, as it is Rosh Hashanah, I will tell you what they are, but I'm not going to get into them or recap since there is a lot, and it is beyond the scope of what I plan to cover. We'll be focusing on the Haftarah for both Rosh Hashanah day one and two. Now, the first day of Rosh Hashanah is from the Torah, Genesis 21, verses 1 through 34, from Parashat Vayera. And it has to do with Sarah and the Lord promising the birth of a son when she cannot have a son or have children. I think this is prophetic of Yeshua's birth to his mother Miriam when she was still a virgin and was not allowed to have kids yet because she was not married to Yosef. And it is a similar miracle of childbirth meant to draw your attention to Hashem doing something above nature and bringing a firstborn son where none should have happened. In Sarah's instance, she was past the time, and in Miriam's instance, she was too early to be having a baby. Now, in this way, I like the way that God does bookends and polar opposites sometimes, and we see that with Sarah being way too old and Miriam and, and being past physical childbearing um, ability, and Miriam being too young or too early in her life as she was not yet married, um, even though she was physically capable, she was physically prohibited. So we see two large, you know, similar circumstances in these two women, but very different phases of their life cycle. Now, the Moftir portion for Rosh Hashanah, day one, is Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6, from Parshat Pinchas, about the offerings for Rosh Hashanah. Now, the Haftarah for day one is Shmuel, Aleph, or Aleph, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 10, where we see the birth of Shmuel Hanavi and his mother's prayers before his miraculous conception as well, and her prayers afterward. Now, Rosh Hashanah day 2, which by the way is observed also in Israel and is um, ordained by Judaism to be observed as a two-day festival because it is the only major festival that falls on a new moon. So, it is, and there are other deeper reasons why it's celebrated for two days, and including in Israel. Uh, but it has the following readings Genesis 22, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6, again on day two. And this includes offerings for the holiday. And then we go to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 19, for the Haftarah. So let's jump right into the Rosh Hashanah. Haftarah for day one. So, as you know, Rosh Hashanah is observed for two days, even in Eretz Israel. One reason is it is the only holiday to fall on a new moon. There is much that goes into this, but I'm not going to be able to cover that today. A uh, deeper meaning is that if that the two-day holiday confuses the Satan, and it is also uh, it is it also is called Rosh Hashanah. That is. Uh, Yoma Arichta. Uh, 
Rosh Hashanah has uh, other names, and one of them in Aramaic is Yoma Ha'arichta, one long day. Now, I believe Yeshua is quoting Zechariah 14, verses 6 through 7, when Yeshua himself uh, says, But of, of that day and hour, or about that day and hour in Greek, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Matthew 24, 36 is where he says that, and I think he's quoting Zechariah 14. He also says the same thing, and possibly because this is a parallel passage in Mark 13, 32, and Matthew 25, verse 13. Uh, now, Matthew 25, 13 is a reminder that you must keep watch because you do not know the day or hour of his return. But here's the interesting part. If you understand the times and seasons, you know Messiah Yeshua must return on Rosh Hashanah, but we just don't know which year and which day of the two-day festival or the hour because there are multiple watches in the night. And that's important if you believe that he may be coming at nighttime. And we see in Psalm 90, verse 4, that um, it's a prayer of Moshe, the man of God. And he says, To you, O Lord, a day is as a thousand years um, when it is past. And there's a vav there. Vav in Hebrew means and a watch in the night. So it means that uh, in ancient Judaism, they believe that the Lord has a calendar of 6,000 years and that leads up to the day that is all Sabbath, six millennia, and you get to the seventh millennium. But it says that a day to you is as a thousand years and a watch in the night. So I believe it means that God added on this little bit of extra extra few hours. So 6,000 years plus three to four hours, let's say. Now in Judaism, this is a much longer study that I'm not prepared to do, but each day has its own amount of daylight so no day is exact no day has exactly 24 um how can i put it uh it's hard to explain i wasn't prepared to talk about this but there's there's a jewish there's an hour um each day that's calculated by the number of hours of daylight and then divided by 12. So each hour in Judaism is not necessarily 60 minutes. You may have an hour, a day where an hour um, of daylight is 58 minutes and it could go all the way up to, you know, 60 plus minutes. I don't know if it goes up to 70, but it's in the summer, obviously your, your, your Jewish hours are longer. So be that as it may, I'm not trying to figure all that out mathematically, but a day is a day to you, Lord, is a thousand years and a watch in the night. So if you count up six days for God, you have six thousand years plus six watches in the night. One watch for each millennium. So, uh, and that's actual hours, not symbolic hours of any kind, in my opinion. Now, uh, additionally, before we get to the Haftarahs for both days, uh, let me go back here. Okay, so... The interesting part, like I was saying, if you understand the times and seasons, you know Messiah Yeshua must return on Rosh Hashanah. But additionally, before we get to the Haftaras for both days, so where was I? But additionally, before we get to the Haftaras for both days, if you look at Acts 1-7, Yeshua says, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. But he was speaking to a specific group at that time. You know, even if you apply that to us, look at what he says about the giving of the Spirit. 
that the Spirit will come upon them and they will be his witnesses unto, unto the ends of the earth. Well, his witnesses would have to understand how to share the prophetic calendar with both Israel and the Gentiles, even just the basic calendar of, of observance from Leviticus 23. And besides, if you understand the themes and scriptures about all the months and the seven major festivals, then you understand the spring Moadim, or appointed times, prophesied about his first coming, as well as a redemption and in the gathering, and a major exodus that will dwarf the first exodus in the future. And the fall Moadim, or Hagim, tell us of the future return of Yeshua in the air, in the Techiat Hametim, the resurrection of the dead. And Rab Shaul says also the righteous living in Messiah, as well as we, shall not precede those who died first. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 for those insights, since we are limited on time here. I will not read those verbatim. So, uh, Yom Kippur, we see, will be the end of the tribulation period, or the birth pangs, as it is more properly called in Scripture. And Sukkot is the reestablishment and installation of Yeshua, as king and ruler over the entire restored planet. Now that's a Yom Kippur in the future. We don't know what year. A Sukkot in the future. We don't know what year. Now on the Jewish calendar, it'll be 6,000 and uh, 6,008 uh, after the birth pangs are over because the birth pangs will last from Rosh Hashanah 6,001 to Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur 6,008. So I believe the Ruach HaKodesh taught the apostles and their students all of this as the spirit flows with the times and seasons of Hashem. Also in scripture, we see then the angels tell them in Acts chapter 1, he will return the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So all these were clues about the resurrection of the dead. And let me get that verse for you. That is Acts chapter 1, I believe. Yes, it's Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. And resurrection specifically pertains to Rosh Hashanah. Resurrection is a theme uh, of Rosh Hashanah. And yes, uh, Yeshua was resurrected at first fruits in Nisan, Bikurim, festival of Bikurim in Nisan in uh, the year 30 Common Era. But the end time resurrection has been part of Rosh Hashanah liturgy and belief in Judaism for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Plus, if we knew what year he was returning, back to no person knows the day, or no man knows the day or the hour, or about that day and hour, no man knows. If we knew what year he was returning, it could be a cause for laziness. So it's nice to be surprised and not know exactly what day or time or year, uh, because it keeps us vigilant for service to God. And also, it's, a, it's an encouragement to share with those who don't believe, because there is a ticking clock here. And Okay, so we hear about the birth of Shmuel Hanavi to Elkanah and his wife Hannah in the Rosh Hashanah Haftarah of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, she had been unable to have kids for many years, while her rival Panina, the other wife of Elkanah, had been giving birth to a plethora of children. The similarity to the story of Sarah and Avraham and the birth of Yitzhak is the connection for why this Haftarah was picked for Rosh Hashanah day 1. A very famous prayer in Judaism is part of the Haftarah when Hannah goes to Shiloh, where the Mishkan was, and she pleads with tears and quiet prayers that Hashem give her a son and she'll be completely devoted, uh, or she will completely devote him to the Lord. Now, when the Kohen Hagadol 
uh, Ellie, spelled, which incidentally the name is spelled Ayin Lamed Yud, interestingly enough, uh, not Aleph Lamed Yud, which would mean my God, but Eli with Ayin means unto me or upon me. And it could mean something else, but that's the probably the most common um, meaning of that three-letter uh, word. So Eli sees Hannah whispering, and he accuses her of being drunk. And what a nice man, assuming the best in her, we see. And yes, that was sarcasm. But looking at that incident more carefully and how he treated her, it makes sense his sons were terrible people, and they were serving in an evil capacity in the priesthood. Uh, now, the Torah teaches that we do not, we should not treat people like that with rebuke until we diligently ask and make sure the matter is certain and known, and only then shall we make a determination and judgment. If you see Devarim chapter 13, verses 12 through 14 in particular, this can be applied to many situations, not just the one here in this passage. But uh, Devarim chapter 13, verses 12 through 14, says that you are to diligently ask and inquire and make sure the matter is certain and known and only then shall you make a determination and judgment and some say that it was not the norm until then to pray in a whisper that was not a normal behavior so Hannah's prayer is in fact the source for our primary prayer the Amidah being said in a whisper you may ask if you ever go to a prayer service where the Amidah is said why most of it is said in a whisper. Well, this is the source of that. Now, this says some commentaries, together with her intense outpouring of emotion, led Ellie to his conclusion about possibly she was drunk. Now, even Yeshua says to judge righteously, because according to the measure we judge, others will be ourselves. What? Sorry. To the measure we judge, others, th to that measure we ourselves will be judged. That's John Chapter 7, verse 24. John 7, 24. Alright, so Ellie understood, and then Hannah conceived. And he understood that she was praying. She was not drunk. And Hannah conceived and had a son named Shmuel. I don't believe, by the way, Ellie's understanding or acceptance that she was really praying from her heart had anything to do with her being heard by the Lord. I think she would have been heard by God and conceived anyway. And her son, she named Shmuel, which means heard of God because her prayer was heard by God. And I believe it was prophetic that he was going to be the voice of uh, God to the people. And that he would be heard by God in his prayers and petitions for Israel. Now at about the age of three, she took him to Shiloh and put him in Eli's care. And also important to note was that Elkanah, the father of Shmuel, was a Levite. So Shmuel was also a Levite. Now, to be a servant at the Mishkan, you had to be a Levite. Now, the Haftarah ends with her second prayer as she praises Hashem for accepting her first prayer and says the following. Please, my Lord, as surely as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here with you to pray to the Lord. For this child did I pray, and the Lord granted me my request, which I asked of him. And I also have lent him to the Lord. All the days which he will be alive, he is borrowed by the Lord, and he prostrated himself there to the Lord. So, and he prostrated himself there to the Lord. I, that might be out of place. So, 
that might be Shmuel, but that was not part of the verses. So anyway, let's ignore that. So here's what I see. The birth of the Messiah, a miracle happened. The birth of Yeshua. A miracle happened. A woman who should not have had a baby has a baby and then only devotes him to the service to the Lord. But her name, Miriam, okay, was the mother of Yeshua, um, means bitter waters. And Hannah, her name means grace. So I see the birth of the Messiah in this. A miracle happened to Hannah. Her name means grace. And her husband's name means God purchases or acquires. Elkanah. Or God obtains or takes possession of. Now the father is taken possession or acquires a son by grace, by Hana. So think about it. Fast forward several centuries to the year uh, 3 BCE or a couple millennia uh, to the year 3 BCE. And Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, has a miraculous birth. Not having had marital relations with Yosef, her uh, betrothed uh, fiancé. The opposite happened to Hannah. She had been married trying to conceive for years and years, and it didn't happen. But with Miriam, she conceives beyond nature miraculously in a different, but yet still miraculous way like Hannah, and gives birth to a male child that is acquired by God for service in his temple, Yeshua. Both his body, the body of Yeshua, made by God for the Messiah to inhabit on earth and by grace. And he gave Miriam grace, the mother of Yeshua, to conceive and still be married and carry Yeshua both as a fetus and raise him into adulthood. And she became a mother to many other children afterward. Uh, Miriam, that is. And Yeshua had brothers and sisters. Now, I'm not sure, though, if Hannah had further children in Jewish tradition. I feel like I read that she did for fulfilling her promise to dedicate Shemuel to the Lord and that she gave birth to brothers and sisters afterward. Now, let's go on to day two. We go to one of the major prophets, Yirmiyahu, specifically chapter 31, verses 1 to 19, for the Haftarah of day 2. So it is about how much Hashem loves Am Yisrael. And again, we are seeing a passage that discusses the future, the collection and the collection of the exiles. Now, verse 19 uh, specifically speaks to this. Now, this whole chapter, by the way, in my opinion, hinges on the verse about how God will form or cut a new covenant with both Israel and Judah, not like the one he made with them at the Yitziat Mimitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, because they broke it, and he still upheld his part, but rather he will make a new covenant and write the Torah, specifically the Chukim, the decrees that are without reason and are currently unexplainable. Certain mitzvot are called Chukim. We do like mikvah keeping kosher, shatnez, not mixing wool and linen. Those are called hukim because there are many, these are, these are the types of commandments that we do just because Hashem says so. And they test us to see if we'll love God without reason and without understanding. And it is perhaps that the meaning was lost and there are some deeper, um, deeper understandings of these, deeper spiritual meanings that um, the sages have written about or come up with um, that you can read about that are interesting and make sense and uh, they connect to how we should conduct ourselves spiritually, emotionally, physically. Uh, and there's still most of these commandments like keeping kosher, uh, the mixing of wool and linen, the prohibition against it, and um, mikvah, those are all observable without the temple uh, outside the land of Israel. 
So we will read the verses shortly uh, that I'm about to talk about, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. But I firmly believe Yeshua is alluding to these verses um, that we're talking about um, in from Jeremiah 31. Now regarding Ephraim and the redemption of the exiles, the galut, the exile, which means the di or diaspora, um, we see this theme in the Rosh Hashanah prayers, where we pray for Hashem to remember us for good and in a favorable way on Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment, or Rosh Hashanah. Now, in verse 3, there are some interesting things in the Hebrew. It says, again, od, ayin, vav, dalit, in Hebrew. I will build you, but the word here, if the vowels are changed, is your stone. So, I will build you can actually be changed and become the word your stone. And then the word for adorned in the phrase adorned with tambourines is the root for witness. So you get a deeper hidden meaning of the stone. So let me go ahead and read you verse 3 so you hear it in English what I'm talking about. Okay, so this is verse 3 and 4. The Lord appeared to him from afar. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you shall take up your tambourines, or be dressed in tambourines, adorned with tambourines, and go forth in the dances of the merrymakers. All right, so, uh, let's see. Uh, the phrase, um, the word for adorned in the phrase adorned with tambourines is the root for witness. So you get a deeper hidden meaning of the stone. Instead of, I will build you, I will be your stone, a stone for you, your stone, and Yeshua will be a witness, an ode, or an ed, ayin dalid, as it, meaning the stone, or he, Yeshua, rebuilds the virgin daughter of Israel. The betulat Israel, it means virgin daughter of Israel, again, okay, and the root in the middle of the word for tambourines is p. Pei Yud, meaning mouth, okay? Now, it could also be Pei Hei, but the word for tambourine is typically Tof, with no Hei on the end. Uh, and it is a masculine word, Strong's number 8596, and it is spelled Te, I'm sorry, Tav, Fei, Sofit, meaning Tav, and a final Fei. So if you know Hebrew, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, what's interesting here is that the way it is spelled with plural possessive, it adds up in gematria, 400 for tav, 80 for pei, 10 for yud, and 20 for final haf, which equals one, uh, 510. Now, later in the passage, in verse 16, we see the phrase v'yesh tikva. Now, tikva means hope. It's the name of the Israeli national anthem, and it adds up to 511. You have Tav, 400, Kof, 100, Vav, 6, and Hey, 5. That's 511. Now, in other words, music from your tambourines can take you just one further. In this case, one number further, one step up a ladder further from 510 to 511. And from the phrase, your tambourines, you step up spiritually through praise and worship to Hashem, and you rise just one step to 511 and attain tikva, which means hope. Now I'm using the gematria values to illustrate that there's just one number value, one number different, 510 to 511, when you go from the word 
your tambourines to there and there is hope. All right. But I just did the gematria for the word hope, not for the whole phrase. Now, another interesting thing here is that the hope, Hatikva, is the Messiah Yeshua, of course. And the phrase Vayesh, which means in Hebrew, there is, it appears, and there is, um, it appears in front of the word Tikva. Now, if you rearrange the, word, the letters Vayesh, you get the name Yeshua, Vav, Yud, Shin, Hey. But it's missing one letter that Yeshua's name has, which is the Ayin. Now, the, it's like Avraham instead of Avraham. It's missing a letter. But it's interesting because the Ayin is silent. Now, that's something even more amazing about that. So, at, now at this point, in verse 16, God is still telling Am Israel that there is hope for their future and the children return to the border. Uh, their land will return to its borders. Now, I think it's the, it's missing the ayin because it's encoded that they still do not see Yeshua. Am Yisrael still does not see Yeshua. And what does the letter ayin mean? Every letter in Hebrew has a meaning. If you spell out the name of each letter, it actually has a meaning in modern Hebrew uh, as well as in biblical Hebrew. So the letter ayin means an eye, and it's even drawn like two eyes in a kind of hieroglyphic way with a face so this they see him israel sees him almost they see yeshua but not completely they're still not seeing 100 percent of them with their eyes or 100 percent with their eyes so there's one last letter of the name missing here in anagram form for the name yeshua well, just my opinion but that's what i see now jeremiah describes how all of the exiles will be gathered back to israel and they will plant vineyards on the hills of Shomron, which is Samaria. Now you will again plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria, Jeremiah says. Behold, I will bring Israel from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. A large assembly will return here. Weeping with joy, they will come and with compassion. I will lead them. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will console them and gladden them after their sorrow. Now this reminds me of Zechariah 12, where it says, They will mourn him and look upon him whom they have pierced. Uh, because it's going to take that for them to see, to truly see Yeshua, have that he was the pierced one. He was the one that was offered and uh, lost his life and was murdered, allowed himself to be uh, brutally murdered for the sins of all mankind. All right, then we come to another famous mother and a famous passage, of which there is much written by the sages in Judaism, Rachel. Now, Rachel, the mother of Yosef and Benjamin, uh, yet another mother, one of the matriarchs, in addition to Sarah and Hannah, who we spoke about earlier, it says she refuses, Rachel refuses to be consoled for her children that have been sent away out of Eretz Israel to Babel, Babylon. Now Hashem says, still your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. There is hope for your future. The children shall return to their border. The, the verse we were just talking about. Now it is interesting here that Rachel is weeping over the southern kingdom the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and even Shimon were the southern kingdom. Shimon got absorbed into Judah, and these being the southern tribes, but Ephraim was represented of the northern tribes, and Ephraim was a code name for all ten tribes that were carried away to Assyria some decades or more earlier before the southern exile uh, of Judah, Benjamin, and Shimon um, 
before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in the south. Now Rachel is weeping in a spiritual picture for Ephraim, which was one of the sons of Yosef, so her grandson. And uh, Yosef was her son, so Ephraim was one of her grandsons. So even though she never met him in this life, uh, because she died in childbirth with Benjamin. So that would make Ephraim her grandson, representing all the rest of Israel. So Benjamin was her second son, who's part of the southern kingdom. So in the end, in the Olam Haba, she gets to be mother over all of the nation. But I'm sure Leah has a great place among the Tzadikim as well. Well, that does it for this special edition, Rosh Hashanah 5784 podcast. And it is the first one of the new year. Yay! This year we will complete the cycle by covering the Haftarot of the holidays all the way through Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. And then it will be time for a shift. More to the times and seasons, perhaps, of each month. And I'd like to also cover days we have not spoken about before, such as one that occurred on the 3rd of Tishri called Som Gedalia. So we'll see what we'll be covering, but that's like a hint and a preview. Be'ezrat Hashem. So, may your new year be inscribed, and may you be inscribed for good in the Book of Life, but more importantly, in the Lamb's Book of Life. And let's read that and invite everyone to make Yeshua the atoning offering for your life and cover your sin nature with His blood and lead a life worthy of the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Uh, and this is from Revelation. And this, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall be, and there shall in no, and there shall in it no wise enter into it. Let me read that verse again. Verse 20, Revelation 21, 23. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Its menorah is the Lamb, and the nations, the Goyim, shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. May your name be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Shalom, friends, and may you have a Yom Mevorach and Shabbat Mevorach and Shavua Mevorach. Please write to us about any ideas or questions at footstepsofthemessiah at gmail.com. God bless you. Shalom.